Hey friends, uh, good evening. Welcome to RUF. Um, my name is John Bourgeois. I'm the campus minister with RUF here at Wake. Um, if this is your first time here with us, uh, we're glad that you're here. Um, thanks for coming. I'd love to meet you. Um, if I haven't met you yet, please come introduce yourself to me. Um, I'd love to meet you and get to know you here on campus. Um, Preston said it already, but I'm going to say it again. Um, RUF, uh, we want it to be a place for the convinced, for those um, who are convinced of what they believe, whether you're a Christian um, or you're not a Christian, um, and also for those who are unconvinced, people who don't yet know um, what they believe. We want this to be a place where you can uh, hone your questions and figure out what that is. Um, so we're glad you're here tonight. You live in an achievement culture. You live in an achievement culture. There's an article in Huffington Post about this written by a guy named Andrew Yang, and he writes this. In his book, Excellent Sheep, William Deservewich describes the current generation of strivers as driven to achieve without knowing why. And then they become paralyzed when they're not sure how to proceed. I jokingly call the hang-ups associated with the drive to achieve as the achievement demons. When I was growing up, I'd study for days trying to get good grades, and when I got an A, I'd feel elation for about 30 seconds and then a feeling of emptiness and then rinse and repeat. I feel this constant pressure to make something of myself. This is what one young person who now works at a startup after interning at an investment bank said. said, even during celebrations, it's like we're all plotting the next competition. My friends have a ton of ambition and no clear place to channel it. I get the sense that we're all trading happiness to run a little faster, even if we're not sure where. Right? Y'all live, this is familiar, right? Because we live in an achievement culture. For many of you, it has felt like waking up from a dream to find that you're running on a treadmill and that you've been running on this treadmill since middle school. Right? You're accepted into wake. You were told, now go achieve. You'll be great. And it's easy for us to transfer this onto God. Um, the Bible talks about the work that God has done for us in Christ, that work applied to us, and it uses two words to describe this, justification and sanctification. Justification is the work of God's free grace where he pardons our sins and he declares us righteousness because of Christ's righteousness imputed to us, which we receive by faith. This is justification. And sanctification is the work of God's free grace where he renews us into the image of God and we're enabled more and more to be like Jesus. Um, sanctification is the work of God making us more like Jesus. But here's the thing. We're so immersed in a culture of achievement that we import it into our Christian lives, and the Christian life becomes about achievement. And tonight, as we read God's word together, um, we're going to see that this is not the case, but that in Christ, God offers us a better way. Rather than our sanctification, us being made into the image of Jesus, um, being something to achieve, we're going to see that it's actually something that we receive. It's about receiving and not achieving. We're going to read uh, from Colossians uh, this evening. If you want to turn, if you've got a, a Bible with you, you can turn to Colossians 2, 6 through 7. If you've got a handout with you, the yellow handouts, it's on there as well. Um, we're going to read from Colossians 2, 6 through 7. Just two verses tonight. This is God's word for us this evening. Um, he gives it to us because he loves us. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, 
rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that you would um, help us to peer into your word. Would you show us um, Jesus and help us to make sense um, of how we're to receive him? Um, Help us, we pray in his name. Amen. So this semester, if you've been with us, you know that we're studying Colossians together. Um, In most of Paul's letters, the Apostle Paul wrote a handful of letters, which are the majority of the New Testament. And most of Paul's letters uh, have a very similar structure. Um, They start with telling us what it is that God has done for us in Christ. Um, And then the second half of the letter is how do we respond to this? And the way that theologians talk about it is that he gives us the indicative and then he gives us the imperative. The indicative is what is true and the imperative is what to do. The indicative what God has done in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to effect salvation. And the imperative, what it looks like for us to live in response to Jesus. And the indicative and imperative hang together in his letters on a hinge. And that's what we've got in Colossians 2, 6 through 7. This is the hinge of Colossians. So everything before that we've read hangs on this hinge, um, which then opens the door to everything after in this letter. Um, And we see this hinge with the word therefore, right? The therefore tells us that everything before, Paul then says, therefore, given what I've been saying to you, this is what I want you to do. And Paul is saying that what he's been saying and what he's about to say is about receiving and not achieving. And then Paul gives us five word pictures here, these five verbs in these these verses. Um, And in a way, this is actually outlining the rest of the book for us. So we're going to be talking about these for the rest of the semester. Um, But these, these five verbs are a picture for us of what it looks like to live in response to the gospel. So the first is walk. Um, He tells us to walk in him. The word walk is a, um, an Old Testament word for ethical behavior. We see this all over the Psalms. In Psalm 119, it says, Blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord. Now, we get this. We get walk as a, a way of ethical behavior. Think of it this way. You ask a friend of yours to meet you at Silo for dinner in Renolda Village. Now, you can either tell them, and they ask for directions. You can either tell them to walk on the paved path you know, the paved path through the woods to Renolda Village. Walk on the paved path with its lights and its emergency call boxes, um, which is safe. Or you can tell them to walk through the woods, which now from the signs I know that there are feral cats. Um, there's a swamp. And if you got the email last month, there's also a naked guy. Um, so you would tell them to walk on the paved path, Right. And so the way the Bible uses this picture is to show us that where our feet, where we place our feet, determines the type of journey we will have. And as the Old Testament uses this picture, to walk, it talks about the law, um, to walk in the law before God. But here, Paul isn't talking about the law. He's talking about a person. He calls us to walk in Christ. Well, How? And then he gives us this, these next four pictures. A tree, a house, a legal document, and a jug of wine. He is just mixing metaphors for us. So first, a tree. He says, like a tree, you're to be deeply rooted in Jesus. Now, what do the roots of trees do? They provide stability to the tree so that when the winds blow and the storms rage, the tree can bend and not break. It can sway and not be upended. 
The roots provide stability and they also provide food. As the roots are deep in the soil, they absorb water and minerals um, so that the tree doesn't waste away from the inside. And Paul is saying that the way you keep from being knocked over from the outside or wasting away from the inside is by planting your roots deep in Jesus, by situating yourself in his grace and drinking deeply of his spirit. And like a house, he says, we're to be built up in him. Now, what are houses for? Um, Houses provide shelter. They're the place where we are raised as children and we're taught how to be human. Um, They're the place that we invite others into, that we might love others and serve them. And Paul is saying that as you make sense of yourself as a follower of Jesus, the structure of your life is to be built in Christ. That you would make sense of your calling, your vocation in the world. That the structures of your life are to be built in Christ. With him as the foundation and the cornerstone. Tree, a house. Um, Third, like a legal document were to be established. This word established is uh, the word for ratified or signed into law, codified. And Paul is saying that you should be, that we should be established in the faith just as we were taught. Established, signed it along the faith. This like signing and sealing of, of a document making it true. In the faith here, he's talking about the content of the gospel. That we would be established in knowing what we believe. Um, the gospel, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he has died for our sins, that he has risen from the dead, and that he will come again. And finally, he gives us a picture, like a jug of wine, were to be overflowing with thanksgiving. Abounding here means overflowing. And the image Paul gives us is someone who serves wine at a banquet, and having such an abundance of wine, they pour it into a jug, not half full, not to the top, but overflowing. And he's calling us to be like this with our thankfulness. That the life lived in Christ is a life overflowing with thankfulness for God, for the work that he does in the world and in our lives. The grace that he gives all of us in rain and in sunshine. And the graces that he gives specially to us in Christ. The forgiveness of sins. Adoption into the family of God. In Christ, our life is to be overflowing with thankfulness for his work for us. I have to note that all of the yous in this passage are plural. So Paul is saying that walking in Christ is something that we do together. We don't do it alone. Now, it would be easy for us to look at these pictures and to quickly turn them into a to-do list of achievement. Right? I need to walk by being a tree, a house, a ratified document, and a jug of wine. Don't go around saying that. That'll be, that's kind of weird. Um, but that's not what Paul's doing here, right? He is... Um, he's doing something else because these verbs are in the passive voice. They are passive participles. This means that it's something that God does in you. The work of sanctification is work that God is doing in you by the power of his Holy Spirit as you are in Christ. Right? You cannot achieve these things, but you must receive these. You cannot perform these things, but you must participate in them. One commentator puts it this way. He says, being a Christian is like riding a bicycle. If you aren't moving forward, you're going to fall off. So what does it look like for us to walk in Christ, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as we were taught, abounding in thankfulness? Well, as we've been reading Colossians together, we've been reading it in the context of the entire Bible. And we see that what Paul is doing in Colossians is... 
um, not separate from what God did in the Old Testament, but rather a fulfillment of the promises he made in the first pages of Scripture. One of the commentaries I've been reading as I've been working on this is, um, working on these sermons, is called Colossians Remixed. And um, it gives a really helpful framework for us um, here. They say that it's, um, it's helpful to understand the task of reading and living out the biblical story in terms of an unfinished six-act drama. Unfinished six-act drama. So Shakespeare, if you're familiar with Shakespeare, he wrote five-act plays. Now imagine with me, suppose with me that um, there's this new Shakespearean play or an old Shakespearean play that's recently recovered. And um, all the experts scour it and they see this actually is Shakespeare, but it only has the first four acts. The fifth act is missing. But the first four acts have such great characters, such a, such a great crescendo of excitement within the plot. Um, everyone agrees that this play should be put on. But it feels inappropriate for the experts to write a fifth act once and for all because it would freeze the play into one form and commit Shakespeare to something that he didn't actually write. Better it would be to give the parts, the key parts, to highly trained, experienced, and sensitive Shakespearean actors that they would then immerse themselves in the language and culture of Shakespeare and his time. They would immerse themselves in the first four acts, and then they would work out the fifth act for themselves. And then consider the result. The first four acts would be the undoubted authority of the task, being that anyone who objected to any new improvisation on the grounds, um, or anyone could object to a new improvisation based on the grounds that the character wasn't behaving consistently with who he was, or um, that some certain subplot or theme that was foreshadowed early didn't reach its proper resolution. And the authority of the first four acts would be found in being an as-yet-unfinished drama, which would have its own momentum and demand to be concluded in the proper manner. But it requires actors to enter into the story as it stood and then to speak and act with both consistency and innovation. All right, here's why this matters. Like an unfinished Shakespearean play, the Bible is a six-act drama. Act one, we have creation, where the author, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, reveals his plot intentions in the scene is set. Act two is the fall, where we meet the first major plot tension, right? There's conflict in the story. Humans are alienated from God by their sin. Act three, we have the story of Israel, which is God graciously creating a people for himself to, to reveal his glory to the world. In Act four, we have the story of Jesus, which is a, the, the decisive and pivotal act that begins to unravel sin at its deepest roots. In Act five, we have the story of the church, Beginning on the day of Pentecost, which is the day when God sent his spirit to enliven and create the church. And then it ends in Acts 6, which is the consummation where the author's narrative purposes are fully realized, where God dwells with man in a new heaven and a new earth in perfection. But oddly, in the biblical drama, the script breaks off in the midst of Act 5. And we've got this sizable gap between... The beginning of Act 5, the story of Pentecost in the early church, Act 5, scene 1, and the climactic finale of the drama in Act 6. 
And while there are many clear indications of the shape that Act 5 will take, there is no written script to get us from the beginning of Act 5 to the end of Act 6. Another way of saying this is that we are living in Act 5, that we are on the stage as actors in this divine love story. And our task is to keep the drama alive and move it towards Act 6, recognizing that in the final act, God becomes the central actor again, and he finishes the play. So how do we move this drama forward? We have a promise that the Holy Spirit is our director, and we have to improvise. And like the Shakespearean actors, we must be so completely immersed in the first four acts that our imaginations are transformed and liberated by the vision of the story set before us. And we should so indwell this story that it permeates our very being. And this is what Colossians 2, 6-7 is calling us to. It places us in Act 5. So how do we move into this? How do we participate in this story? What does sanctification look like? Or another way of asking this is how do we walk in Christ Jesus the Lord as we have received him? Well, there are two models for this that I see at work in Wake and in the world. Um, I want to talk about those briefly and then finish by talking about a third way that God offers us. So how do we make sense of our call to be in Act 5, to walk in Jesus So the three ways offered to us are overachievers, faux or fake achievers, and finally receivers. So model one, the overachiever. This is the idea that the resolution of the drama is contingent on me. This is when we're thinking, or you're thinking, um, I need more and better quiet times. I need need to be plugged into more Bible studies. I need to be connected to more campus ministries. I know I'm good with God because I'm doing so much. And if you're not already there, this is you, it will lead you to exhaustion. You will burn yourself out. And because you're awake for a student, in the process of killing yourself, you're, doing, you're going to do a great job, right? On the outside, it'll look great. Freshmen, um, many of you are feeling this as you're trying to figure out where to land in a campus ministry. Um, and why are you doing this? Why are we doing this? Because this is the framework that we have been that has been handed down to us in American exceptionalism, and we don't have a framework for not achieving. Functionally, you believe that you will be closer to God if you are busy, and you are unable to rest in Christ. You're really good at performing for Him, but you have no idea how to receive Him. All right, this is the overachiever. Model two is the faux achiever. Um, There's a great story from The Onion that came out in January that said this. To report, today will be the day when they find out you're a fraud. I'm going to read you some of this. Um, While experts agree you've been remarkably successful so far at keeping up the ruse that you're a capable, worthwhile individual, a new report out this week indicates that today's the day they finally figure out you're a complete and utter fraud. The report compiled by the Pew Resource Center Research Center states that sometime within the next 24 hours, people will find out that you have no idea what you're doing, that you've been faking it for years, and that through continuous lying and shameless posturing, you've actually managed to dupe virtually everyone around you into thinking thinking that you're something other than a weak and ineffectual person. 
They've had their suspicions all along, sources said, but today their suspicions will be confirmed. In addition to everyone you've ever met knowing you're a huge imposter, even strangers on the street will know, the report stated, in most cases, simply by looking at you. All right? Um, some of you, uh, this is hilarious because it's true for us, right? I feel this. Um, some of you feel like you need to put on a face before others in RUF and pretend like you're achieving and performing like the overachievers. So you wear a mask. You pretend that you're super spiritual because of the fear of shame, because of the fear of rejection. The fear that maybe Christ won't, li- won't love you if you're not an overachiever. Or at least that you won't be accepted by your peers. So you can't share about what's actually going on in your life. You can't be honest about your sadness or your difficulties or the sin in your life. And you're scared to ask for help because you're afraid of being condemned by the overachievers. Overachievers don't know how to talk about receiving Christ because you're too busy achieving for him. And faux achievers don't want to learn how to receive Christ because you're scared of being rejected by the overachievers. Though, from your perspective, they're not overachievers. They're just doing it. They're just achieving. Now, here's the thing. Both of us, or all of us, fit into both categories. And most, most of us oscillate between the two hourly. Um, we perform and we pretend. And we go back and forth depending on the situation. But God gives us a third way. Not overachievers. Not faux achievers, but receivers. Walking in Christ as we have received him. So what does it look like to be a receiver? Well, a framework that's been helpful for me in my own life is to understand my life as a Christian, my life in Christ as a life of participation. A life of participation. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, God enables me and empowers me to participate with Christ in my own life. So what does this look like, to participate with Christ in my own life? Well, instead of quiet times where you're focused on your subjective experience with God, which quickly turn into another checkbox on your to-do list, what if you took time during your day to rest and receive Christ as he's found in his word? Instead of Bible studies being a place where you awkwardly open the Bible and then wait for the hour to be over, what if there are places where you open the Bible and were honest about your ongoing need for Jesus and then you prayed one another before the throne of God above? And instead of playing campus ministry roulette where you dip a toe in a bunch of different places, what if you buried your feet in one place and entrusted yourself to those around you and ask God to grow you where he's planted you. And that doesn't have to be RUF, wherever it is. What if you rooted yourself in one place? And instead of killing yourself to be president of as many student organizations as possible, what if you committed to serving in a few and investing in a small place over the course of your four years here? How would that shape how you participate in the life of your dorm or your sorority or your sports club team? or in the classroom. And instead of seeing your studies here, which is what God has called you to, primarily here in your four years at Wake, instead of seeing these as an opportunity for achievement, what would it look like to see your studies, your education, as an opportunity for participation? Participation with God in your own life. I want to leave you with two images. 
The first is this. Imagine that you got accepted to Wake Forest, which you did, but still imagine. President Hatch personally calls you to tell you that you have gotten into Wake and that he's proud of you. You arrive on campus. He comes to you. He puts his arm around your shoulder. He looks you in the eye, and he says, go get him. And then you don't see him for the remainder of your four years at Wake. And then at graduation, he pulls up a chair in front of you, looks you in the eye, and says, how did you do? What did you achieve for me? And let me give you another image. You got accepted to Wake. President Hatch calls you to tell you that you've gotten in and that he's proud of you. You arrive on campus. He puts his arm around your shoulders, looks in your eye, and says, let's do this. And then he helps you move into your dorm, and he walks through the university with you. He holds your hand when you're lonely, which is a funny image. (laughs) Sit with that. He sits with you in class. He goes to the pit with you and you can't find a friend to go with. And when you raise your hand in class and say something, he whispers, great insight. (laughs) He studies with you. He's always encouraging you. He goes with you to office hours and advocates for you before your professor. He gently tells you when it's time to take a nap or when to go for a walk or when to play with a puppy on the quad. And whenever you're about to get your grades, he looks you in the eye and says, you are not your grades. Regardless of how you do, I'm not going anywhere. So when you get A's, he celebrates with you. And when you get D's, he cries with you. Then maybe he takes you to get ice cream. You're still doing the work, but it's no longer about achieving, right? It's about participating. And this is what's on offer for you in the gospel, and this is, where, this is where the metaphor breaks down, because President Hatch isn't God. Hatch didn't die for your sins, and Hatch didn't promise new life through faith in him, and Hatch's spirit doesn't live in those who believe in him. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, this Jesus has reconciled you to the Father through his blood shed on the cross. And this Jesus has sent his spirit to dwell with you and in you so that you might be found in him. And this Jesus calls you to walk in him, to participate with him in the life that he has given you. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, for your word to us, and we need your help. Um, Would you send your spirit amongst us that we might uh, learn how to participate with Jesus in our own lives. Lord, thank you that this is the gift of the gospel, that we are not alone, um, but you are in us, um, that you care for us, uh, that you delight in us, that you are a good and perfect Father. Lord, help us um, to do this and to see Jesus, the one who gave himself for us. We pray in his name. Amen.